one of the treats I enjoy in the summer, as part of my summer reading, is to pick up the latest Bill Bryson book. Bill Bryson, if you've not come across him, and I'm surprised if you haven't, because he's sold millions and millions and millions of books. He's a, he's a travel writer. He's American, that's okay. He's an American who's lived in England for a long, long time. And two things that really uh, I appreciate about his writing. The first is he's a superb observer of people. The second one is uh, he's very, very funny, but he has an ability to summarize huge concepts into one or two pages. Absolutely brilliant about condensing information. So I've read uh, recently uh, the book on the Appalachian Trail. It's called A Walk Through the Woods. So Bill Bryson picks up a friend and he walks along just inside the eastern seaboard from uh, Virginia all the way up to Maine by foot. He cheats along the way. But he meets different and interesting people as he journeys along. And it's fascinating to see the observations that sometimes are lol, laugh out loud, funny, and sometimes are actually quite moving and touching. So I've read that one. I've read the notes from a small island where he journeys around the UK. Painfully uh, sharp observations about English culture and people. Very, very funny. I've read one about Australia. You can guess where that one's about. And this ability to look at people, to understand their needs and struggles, and then to condense big concepts such as conservation, whether it be the national parks in the US or the green belt that runs around uh, the Surrey Hills and the need, he probably lives there, the need for it to be protected above a urban sprawl. He's brilliant at summarising things. Or NASA or the NHS, he summarises big issues in a small amount of space. Well, I thought, you know what, Bill Bryson is something, we know his name, that's the difference, but there are many common threads between the brilliance of Bill Bryson and the brilliance of the Book of Hebrews. What do I mean? The Book of Hebrews is written a long, long time ago, so we could think it's about the long ago and the far away. What is this book written in the New Testament about 2,000 years ago? What has this book got to teach us? Well, the writer, whose name we don't know, is just as good, if not a bit better, than Bill Bryson at understanding the struggles that his audience were facing. You see, he's writing to Christians, and Christians are struggling. It was a, a multi-ethnic and a multi-pluralistic, uh, you could say, society. There, there were gods in every corner. And Christians in that uh, first and second century were struggling to live for Jesus. They were tempted to kind of demerit him. They were tempted to uh, make a shortcut in their faith. They were tempted to turn back. And, and the writer understands the issues the uh, Hebrew Christians were struggling with. And so he wants to write a letter to them to say, you know what, just like Bill Bryson writes about travel more often than not, the writer of this book understands that you're not a Christian in a time and place by yourself. Christians are on a journey. Christians are on a journey, they're on a journey, you could say, from weariness to rest. They're on a journey from alienation to the presence of God. They're on a journey from isolation, being by themselves, to the city of God. And so he writes this book to urban Christians. You can understand that because there's loads about the city, living in the city. So the book is written to urban Christians who are tempted to not keep going on the journey. Because they struggle with this question that we'll see throughout the uh, first few chapters. If God is for us, why is life so hard? If God is committed to our joy, why is suffering so real? 
And so the writer is saying, you are not to turn aside. Don't turn back. Keep going. And the only way that you will get to the city of God is if you fix your eyes on Jesus. It's like an athlete. You know, if you watch the 100-meter sprint, Usain Bolt, while he was still running and winning, he would focus on what is ahead and not look for left or right. Take off anything that hinders. Just be running his running kit. Looking at the finishing line. And that's what the author is doing in this book of Hebrews to say, keep going. You're not in a sprint if you're a Christian. You're more like Mo Farah. It's a long-distance race. I'm glad that he runs and I don't, because I'd, I'd quit. But the writer to the book of Hebrews is to say, keep going. And the only way you're going to keep going is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And that's where the first chapter begins, verses 1 to 4. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Looking at Jesus afresh. It's been called a nosebleed theology. It's so high in what it's talking about, the goodness and greatness of Jesus, the uh, perfection, the beauty of King Jesus, that it's like getting a nosebleed when you go up so high. But let's get our feet down in the Bible first, I trust. What does Jesus bring? What does Jesus bring? Why does he bring it? And how does it change us? Okay, that's where we're going. What does Jesus bring? Verses 1 to 2. What does Jesus bring? Now, if you were to ask your uh, work colleague, if you were to ask your neighbour, perhaps with a survey, what do you think of God? Who do you think God is? I wonder what they would say. They might say, well, I think of God a bit like a force field. He's powerful, but he's distant. Well, actually, says someone else, I think of God more personally. And uh, he's there to meet my needs. He's there to bring me comfort and security in times of trouble and distress. But here, the writer to the book of, or the person who writes Hebrews is something very different. You're in no doubt who God is. If you're a Christian, he says to his audience, because God does not leave anything to doubt. He leaves nothing to your imagination. God has revealed himself personally. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks He's not mute. He's not dumb. But how has he spoken? Look at verse 1 with me. We need to go very carefully. Throughout the history of the world, God has been speaking, says verse 1. He's been revealing himself. He's been displaying his glory. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says he's been revealing himself progressively. The verse says many ways. It's, it's a word to do in pieces. God has been revealing himself one piece at a time. It's it's a word of pieces like a jigsaw puzzle or piecemeal. Gradually, God has been revealing himself. Purposefully, God has been revealing himself. Deliberately, God has been revealing himself to a world who's very, very confused about him. It says that in verse 1. Before Jesus came from heaven to earth, before he came on the rescue mission, God spoke through lawgivers and prophets. He spoke through wise people and song makers or psalmists. It's talking about, verse 1, progressive revelation. God getting to reveal himself slowly and deliberately and carefully. But then look at verse 2. But now, there's a contrast. But now, in the last days, that describes the period of time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. But now in the last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So you've got a contrast here. Look at verse 1. From the past days, verse 2, to the last days. Verse 1. 
from many times, gradually, carefully, to one time, to a final time. From many ways God has been speaking, verse 2, to one way, to a final way. That's not all. Look at verse 3. If Jesus is the final word of God, who is he? Verse 3. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. So God has spoken sufficiently, carefully, authoritatively, conclusively, finally. What does that mean? What's the cash value of that? This is significant to think about. That means that God's words, because of who he is, are permanently relevant. They are authoritative. They are not to be altered or changed. You cannot do a pick and mix with the Bible because God has spoken a final word through Jesus. There is no fuller, there's no more final expression of who God is than in his son Jesus Christ. Full stop, American friends, period, absolute. There's nothing more that God can say. He said it all in his son. Now, friends, if you're new to Christianity, if you're not yet a Christian, these first two sentences, you can begin to understand why I'm saying it's going to give you a nosebleed. We've gone in very deep and we've gone very high. But just from these first two sentences, if you know nothing else of the Bible, you can begin to understand <laughs> how significant Jesus is to us as Christians and who Jesus is himself. God is not a, some sort of divine policeman. He's not someone who stands far away and doesn't care, like a, a heavenly watchmaker. God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come from heaven to earth because he loves us and cares for us and we cannot help ourselves. There's a great problem called our own rebellion and sin, and only God and God alone can do something about it. He's not in hiding. He's revealed himself. He's personal and he desperately wants a relationship with you. Not because he needs it, but because he has compassion on us. And because he loves us. So there's been a progressive revealing of who God is. A, a great revelation, a great reveal, like a, a Mission Impossible mask being revealed. So that in Jesus Christ you can see God completely. You can see God in all his glory. Fully human, fully man, but fully God. From the past days to the last days. That means that this is not a mystical experience. If you, if you were to become a Christian this morning, if you're new to Christianity... It's not something of a feeling. There is a feeling, but it's so much more than that. It's a historically rooted, concrete, physically matter-dependent religion. It's a relationship with the king of the universe who came on a journey to rescue us. It's not about how you feel. There is a subjective reality to the Christian faith, but there's also a bucket load of objective truth that you can bank upon. And that's what we read from 1 Corinthians at the beginning of the service. Jesus appeared not to people just in their hearts, so to speak. He appeared to over 500 people after he paid for the sins of the world on the cross and after God raised him from the grave. And that's why we can be confident as Christians. We don't leave our brains at the door. We can trust the Bible as the word of God. From the last times to the final times. God revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. But then what does he bring? What does he bring? Look at verses 3 to 14. What does Jesus bring? Verse 3, the Son, speaking of Jesus. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. You better put your seatbelt on. What is this saying? Jesus is the exact representation, the imprint of God's nature and person and character. What verse 3 is that the word character, literally when, when the, a parent has a child and you see something that the mum or dad would do and you say they're a chip off the old block, that's exactly what this word means. They're behaving like their parents. And what uh, the author is saying here, when you look at Jesus, he does not look like God, he is God. He's not partially God, he is fully God. There's no iota of uh, a difference in their worth and personhood. God is fully revealed in his Son. Now in olden times, by that I mean about ten years ago and beyond, people used to write things called letters. I say that to anyone who's under 30. There was a time before the internet where people used to write letters. But go even further back in your mind, and you may see in books or you've seen it on a film, do you remember in the times of old Henry VIII and all his merry friends? When a, a letter was written, it was then sealed with wax, and then there was an imprint of a, a ring of authority from a person or an organisation. Remember that ring going into molten wax? That's the idea here. Jesus is not the reflection of God's glory as the moon reflects the sun's rays. Jesus is the sun, S-O-N. Jesus is like the sun, S-U-N. When you look at Jesus Christ, you see the glory of God in full. That's why when you read the Gospels, if you've ever read a Gospel, you see Jesus' glory breaking out. It's as if he's got not just a Daz commercial, you see his power and God's glory and character shining out in the miracles that he performed. You see the brilliance of God in the person of Jesus and it's too much to take. It's the radiance of God's glory, both in what he says and does and in his character, who he is. Like a chip off the old block and a, a wax seal. It's no difference. Just like in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, there's a time when God's people are under bondage to an Egyptian overlord, we can say. And they cry out to God for mercy. And God in his kindness and for his glory's sake saves them miraculously from the Egyptian army. And he saves them through the Red Sea and they're wandering in the desert and God reveals his glory to the Egyptians and he leads his people in the most remarkable way. When it's night time, God is seen in a physical form through a fiery, cloudy pillar. And it's so powerful and so awesome that the Egyptian army are mystified and driven away by God's power. In the daytime, it's a fiery pillar of cloud that leads God's people in a manifest way so they can see God's presence. It's in a form that they can see. But now in verse 3, the author is saying, we are being told that Jesus Christ is the ultimate way that God has appeared. We can see God, not in the figure of a fiery or cloudy pillar, when we see the person of Jesus Christ on the pages of history, on the pages of the gospel, we see Jesus Christ, God manifest in human flesh. He's the exact, the ultimate, the insurpassable, the final revelation of who God is. But a God that we can approach. We look at Jesus and we see the character and glory of God. We see God's power in his actions. We see and hear God's authority through Jesus' words. 
We see his compassion through how he dealt with people. We see God's glory on display. In Jesus, you see the one whose word of authority, verse 3, upholds the universe with a word of creative power. He spoke the universe into being. With a word of authority and power, he sustains the world. The world will not end until Jesus says so. The world continues because Jesus says so. Redwoods, the redwoods of America, are kept in their molecular structure, not because of the glory of science, but because of the power and authority of God sustaining the world. The earth is on 22 and a half degree axis. Why? Because of a cataclysmic event in history? No, because God has ordained it to be so. The power and the glory of God is seen throughout creation and throughout nature. Atoms and molecules are real, but they are ordained and created and used by God for his glory's sake to display his handiwork. But that's not all. Verse 3, part B. After he had provided purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In one sentence, you've got a summary of the whole of the gospel, you could say. Having completed his work as the prophet of God, having offered the ultimate sacrifice as the true priest of God, Jesus is exalted. He's raised up by his Father from the cross, the cruel cross, to the empty tomb and from the earth to the heavens where he sits, it says in verse 3, at the right hand of the Father on high. He is the universal creator. He's the universal king. He's the universal ruler. This is why it's called nosebleed theology. Nosebleed understanding of who God is. Friends, this is who Jesus is. But then why... Is there this long list of quotations that's written a bit differently in your Bible? I said at the beginning that Bill Bryson understands people, and even better than Bill Bryson is the writer to the book of Hebrews. The Christians at the time that he was writing to were facing many struggles. They were tempted to, uh, to deny who Jesus Christ was, to say that he was man, but he was a superman of sorts. Perhaps he was a super angel, but he certainly wasn't the God of the universe. He wasn't the creator God. And so the writer is saying, no, 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 you cannot be in any doubt who Jesus Christ is. Let me remind you of who he is, verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4. But when it gets to verse 5, when these quotations starts, why is there all this stuff about angels? Because the Christians of this time were tempted to demote Jesus from his divinity, his God, his God, his personhood, his character, to lessen that and to say he was some sort of super angel. And so what does the writer say? He's like a lawyer presenting evidence. He's like a, a child playing top trumps when you say, who have you got? Well, mine's better. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Please follow. Verse 5 and 6 can be summarized to say, Jesus is God's begotten son. You're not created. God gave him life, but he's existed into eternity past. Verse 7, let's compare. The angels, they're created servants. Verses 8 to 12. Jesus is the eternal king and creator. Verses 13 and 14. The angels are servants who do God's will. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the final revelation of God's character. He's the author of creation. He's the sustainer of creation. He's the sustainer of creation. Do you see who Jesus is, the writer is saying? But this has been all very high. Let's come down now to us. 
if Jesus is supreme, if Jesus is the universal king, if he alone is God, what does that mean to them and what does it mean to us? What would the writers say to them and to us? Now remember the connection. The people who first listened to these words were living in a multicultural society just like us. They were living in a pluralistic society where there was a lot of confusion about who God was, or gods were many, they were plural, there were many that you could worship. It was by no means a, a monolithic, a, a monoethnic society, it was different, multicultural, pluralistic. And what is the writer saying to them and to us? I think he's saying this. You will be tempted to water down who Jesus Christ is. You will be tempted to not hold fast on the exclusive truth claims of who Jesus Christ claims to be because of who he is. You will be tempted to ignore and change and alter to something that is easier to understand, that cause less offence, the personhood of King Jesus. And he says this, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare water down the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Don't you dare you may struggle with it, but don't you dare back away from the truth and the authority of the Bible, the reality of who Jesus Christ and who God has revealed himself to be. Don't back down from that. It is hard to stand firm. It is challenging, but don't back down. Speak compassionately to your friends. Speak carefully who Jesus Christ is, but speak courageously and speak confidently because Jesus Christ is not a Lord. He's the Lord. He's not a God. He is God alone. Jesus Christ cannot be put on a religious shelf with the other religious leaders. He's far superior to them because he's unique. He alone is glorious. He alone is worthy of praise. Don't back down from this, first century Christians, and he would say the same to us. The temperature is probably hotter then than it is now, but things in the West are getting more difficult for people who believe the Bible, for Christians who own who Jesus Christ is. Especially in the workplace, it's hard. Friends, don't back down. Don't make a Jesus of your own designation. Don't chop off the hard bits of the gospel. Own the truth of the gospel and stand. Fix your eyes on Jesus because it's not a sprint, it's a marathon race. Don't deny the supremacy and uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That's the first point I think we need to hear. Number two, though. If you say who Jesus Christ really is, what difference would that make? And the man called N.T. Wright, he wrote a very helpful couple of sentences I want to remind you of or hear for the first time. If Jesus is this great and this glorious, N.T. Wright writes these two sentences. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the fire, God, has become flesh, that life itself came to life, and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that, or it means nothing. It's a sham, it's a nonsense. It's a bit of deceitful play acting. Friends, either Jesus Christ is who he has revealed himself to be in these verses here, or he's a con artist. Let me be clear. Too often we settle for someone in between, but we need to remember who Jesus Christ is. And if you're not yet a Christian, friends, Jesus Christ is king. He is not someone you invite into your life. He is not someone who you say, well, I like parts of who he is and what he offers, but I don't like all of it. 
He's the king of creation. He's the lord of the cosmos. He's God walking on the earth. He's God who died on the cross for you and for the glory of his father. He is now exalted to a place of authority. And so he commands our attention. He demands our devotion. He's not someone who comes into your life and moves a bit of furniture around. Friends, have you seen him for who he is? So I challenge you to say this. If you're a new Christian and you haven't grasped quite Jesus' majesty, pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal more clearly who Jesus is to you as you study the Bible. If you're not yet a Christian you want to know more, please come and see me. I'd love to read the Gospel with you and see who Jesus Christ is from the pages of the Bible. When you see this king for who he is, there's nothing he cannot ask of you. When you see this king for who he is, you don't throw a few things at his feet. You throw everything at his feet and you say, command me because of his greatness and sufficiency. But if that is who he is, if that is why he's come, then how should it change us? How should it change us? Let's look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. In chapter 2, we've got the first encouragement that you will see through the book of Hebrews. In, in almost every chapter, there are two things that goes together like peas in a pot. There's a warning, and then there's an encouragement or an exhortation of how to behave. And the first one we find in the whole book is there at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, pay careful attention. Now, that's very English and that's very polite. It's far stronger than that. Some Bibles say, pay more, more careful attention. But it's even stronger than that. That's, that's not really strong enough. So perhaps put it this way. For uh, pay careful attention, you could read, be furiously obsessed. Be furiously obsessed with who Jesus is and what he's said. Be furiously obsessed. Take your eye not off the ball, but look at who Jesus is. Don't look anywhere else and keep on looking. Listen to what Jesus is saying and keep on listening. When we go on holiday, very often we go down to Sandbanks on the British Riviera down in Bournemouth. A friend of my mum's got a lovely beach hut she lets us use. And uh, normally, as the kids have got older, we do less, they do more. So all things are about to change, as some of you are aware. Mm -hmm. So we make the bacon buckets and they go and play. And the rule is, there are very few rules at the beach, that you are safe, you only go into the waters up to your waist until you get to a certain age, and then you can swim. But you always stay in front of the beach hut. Don't let the current take you. And it's just a matter of time before the current does take them. And we just do the, uh, the whistle and we give the sign to say, come back in front. We need to see you, we need to make sure you're safe. Or I rip off my shirt and go in and save anyone in peril. The writer is saying this. Friends, if you do not keep on listening and keep on looking to Jesus, if you're not furiously obsessed by what he's done on the cross and the gospel, by what he said, you will drift. This is not something that can happen consciously. Very often it happens carelessly. You drift from your first love. You move from a place of safety and conviction to somewhere else that cannot take your weight, so to speak. Anyone who says, well, I believe the gospel, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose, but I want to know the deeper teaching now. I want to move on. The writer, I would say to you, there's nothing else to move on to. You need to be furiously obsessed with the truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus died for our 
reconciliation, that he rose for our justification, that we will be right with God legally. That's like yeast that you can work through into every nook and cranny and every part of your life. It's not something you understand and move on to something uh, more difficult or something different. If you do that, you will drift. So the writer is saying, here's a warning. If this is who Jesus is, verses 1 through to the end of chapter 1, how should we respond to this universal king? So clear. We must listen to him. We must place our hope in him. We must obsess in him. People obsess on many things, don't they? You can be watching Match of the Day on a Saturday night, and then you can rewind it and say, did you see that goal? The hair stands up on the back of your neck when you look at it. How did they do that? But friends, there's something far more precious that we can obsess on, that we can meditate on, that we can work into and apply to our lives. We can say to a good Christian friend, I don't understand how this should act in my life. Can you help me? We can study the Bible and life groups together and say and pray, I want to grow in my knowledge of this. I want to mature. Please will you help pray for me because I'm struggling with this area. Have you struggled with this? And so on. We need to be obsessive, carefully obsessive, consumed by the goodness of God and the truth of the gospel and working into our lives as we grow up. You don't move on from Jesus dying for our sins. You grow up into it. Nothing else to enjoy and learn. It's applying the gospel to our lives. Because the warning is clear, verse 1 of chapter 2. If we don't, if we stop listening, if we stop looking, then we'll drift away. We'll drift away. But what we drift away from, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Verse 2 of chapter 2 is talking about the Old Testament law that God spoke after he delivered his people, after he rescued them from the uh, tyranny of Egypt. He spoke a word as the, the glory of the cloud descended on the top of Mount Sinai. And there was thunder and lightning and clouds as the glory descended in a manifest form that people could see. And then he spoke. And then he wrote down the commands of God. And it says here in verse 2, something of that, that angels attended to his needs at that time. You can see that from the book of Deuteronomy and Psalm 68 as well. And what's interesting is the writer to the Hebrews says there was a law in the Old Testament. He says nothing bad about it. It's good and it's worthwhile. It's meaningful. It was a good salvation. But friends, verse 3, what about the greater salvation? That was a great act of redemption that God revealed his glory in the Old Testament. But now there's been something even greater and grander. It's about Jesus Christ. If you were to neglect the law of Moses, that would have been a terrible thing. But friends, there's something worse. If you neglect the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ for who he is, there's no hope, there's no safety from the wrath to come. The greater salvation is talking about the salvation, not from Egypt, but from sin and death on the cross, Jesus. And so how do we respond? Psalm chapter 2 says this, if this is who Jesus is, chapter 1, this is the greater salvation, remember who he is at the start of a new week. Remember that Jesus Christ died to save you on a rescue mission. You could try and obey the Old Testament commandments. You could try and keep the law, but we'll never be able to. And so what did God do in his great kindness? He sent his son on a rescue mission. 
He sent his son to seek and to save us, me and you that are lost, to take us up in his arms to a place of safety through the cross. And so how do we respond? Verse 3. Friends, do not look at anything else. Verse 3. Don't neglect. Don't ignore such a great salvation. Don't turn back to the world. Keep going in the race. Keep going on the journey. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking at him. Don't knock down. Don't relegate Jesus away from his uniqueness and his superiority. Don't focus on anybody else. Don't ignore the good news of Jesus, thinking that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But, chapter 2, verse 1, obsess on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Try and understand that more and more. Be with good people that can help you understand mature people that, as we thought last week, have suffered. How can Christ help me through this time of difficulty? Obsess on that reality. Pay careful attention to the love of Jesus. What does that mean? How should I love other people the way Jesus has loved me? Focus on the work of God's Son. Don't look anywhere else. Spend more time in the Bible than we do on Netflix. That's an sign of obsessing on the Bible, trying to understand it more and more. And friends, as you read it, as you catch glimpses of God's glory, it has tremendous power to come into a hard heart and make a new heart. To a cold heart, make it a warm heart and a soft heart. All because of the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus, who died on the cross to seek and save those who were lost. If you focus on that, you won't drift, but you will see more and more of God day by day, and it will really, really change you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that is so, so rich. Please help us to listen to your voice through your word, to focus on your son, to be ever so thankful for him, and to listen to his voice above all the voices of the world around us. Help us to listen to his and to his alone. Amen. Amen.